and open them directly in the middle and just go to your right. If you get to all those small minor profit books, you've gone a little bit too far. We are doing all of chapter 5 today, and it's a, it's a long passage, but it's a fascinating passage. And uh, I'd like to say I really enjoyed getting this one ready, but uh, in the middle of preparing it, I broke out in hives, uh, not from Daniel 5, but from something I ate and spent several hours in the emergency room. Um, so like if I fall over or something, it's not a big deal. They, uh, um, so they gave me uh, some kind of antihistamine cocktail. Um, so I'm like, not all here. So we'll see how it goes. Daniel chapter 5. The writing on the wall. This is the ninth sermon in this book on Daniel that I've entitled A Broken World and a Sovereign God. We've been seeing that as we go through. So many things in life are broken, and yet God is sovereign over all of them. So let's turn to this passage. Listen carefully to the word of God. Daniel 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lord, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. You might have seen that in that before each song, the slide that went up there had a picture of that. Then the king's color changed. And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple, and have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. Apparently she was not there. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. 
The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he killed, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. And whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind. His mind was like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. And, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in, in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand was set, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. (coughs) Excuse me. Meany, meany, tekel, parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Meany, also pronounced mina. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, in Hebrew it would be tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we have come to your word, and we're amazed to see the hand of your providence at work. 
There are people here this morning who need to hear the message of this word, Lord. So open our ears to truly hear. And we ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, humble us before your sovereignty, that we might taste of your grace and not of your judgment. Do this for each of us this morning, in Jesus' name, and for his glory. Amen. I wanted to say something about not being enough discipline in the church, but... (laughs) What's your life worth? What would your life be worth if the value of your life was measured in wooden baseball bats? Best aluminum bats go for about $400. The best wooden bats go for about $90, but if you buy them in bulk, it's a little cheaper. If you're not sure how many bats you're worth, last year you could have asked John Odom. You can ask the most hardcore baseball fan about John C. Odom, and most likely you'll get a blank stare, but millions of people have heard of this slender right-hander. He was Batman, or Bat Guy, or Bat Boy, the minor league baseball player who was traded for 10 maple baseball bats. Became a big joke last May when word of the unusual swap uh, jumped off the sports pages and the former prospect for the San Francisco Giants went from pitcher to punchline. People are like, I'd kill myself and stuff, Odom said at the time, dismissing any such notion. But three weeks after the trade, he led, left the team. And six months after the trade, he was dead. The medical examiner said Odom's death in Georgia on November 5th at age 26 was caused by an overdose from heroin, methamphetamine, the stimulant benzylpiperazine, and alcohol. Odom's death had drawn little notice by the start of spring training this year, but now former teammates, managers, club officials keep asking a question for which there is no satisfying answer. I guarantee this trade thing really bothered him. That really worried me, said Dan Schwamm, who managed Odom last year on the Laredo Broncos, Laredo, Texas, in the United League. I really believe, knowing his background, that this drove him back to the bottle, that it put him on the road to drugs, but there's no way to really know whether the trade did it. Is there? The Giants released Odom in spring training last year, and the Calgary Vipers offered him a job. But because of a 1999 conviction for assault when he was a minor, he couldn't get into Canada. And so on May 20th, the team made the famous trade. The Laredo Broncos, uh, the general manager, proposed buying Odom's contract for $1,000. But the Calgary Vipers rejected that, saying they didn't do cash deals because it made the team look financially unstable. Bats, though, the Vipers could use. And at $665 for 10 bats, remember they're cheaper if you buy them by the case, made by Prairie Sticks, double-dipped black, 34 inches long, model C243, Laredo agreed to the unusual deal. 
Odom did more than change teams. He changed identities. One day he was a ball player. The next day he was an answer to a trivia question. Eager to play, Odom drove, uh, packed up after the trade, drove 30 hours straight, nearly 2,000 miles from, uh, on the border of Canada to Laredo. When he arrived in Texas, everyone wanted to ask him about the bats. And at first, he lapped up the publicity. He said, Batman survives. His first outing went okay. He seemed to handle it well. He gladly agreed to interviews. And he kidded about the kooky deal and said it would make a better story if he reached the major someday. And then came a particularly bad night in Amarillo. Baseball isn't always the warm and fuzzy game of Bull Durham, field of dreams, and for the love of the game. It can be cruel and unforgiving. And on June 5th, last summer, in Amarillo, the Batman theme played while Odom warmed up for Laredo, and he tipped his cap to the sound booth. But when he got battered for eight runs, he was mercilessly taunted by the crowd. The manager went out to the mound to get him. The chants, the catcalls, they were terrible. I had to get him out of there for his own good. He was falling apart right in front of our eyes. And when Schwamm, the manager of the Laredo Broncos, noticed Odom becoming more withdrawn, he called a team meeting. The message, no more talking about the trade or the bats by anyone. On June 10th, Odom pitched five good innings in San Angelo in what turned out to be his third and last start. And on the bus after the game, Odom said he needed to speak with Schwamm the next day. The next day, he went into his office and said, Skip, I'm going home. I just can't take it. I got some things to take care of. I got to get my life straightened out. And with that, he disappeared. Details of his final day are elusive. His death was obscure. There's no record on where he was living, no explanation of how his body wound up at the hospital, no police report, no public record of where he is buried. The bats he got traded for, though, they're easy to discover. Quick internet search shows a picture of them stamped with John Odom Trade Bat. They were never used. The Vipers eventually decided to auction them off for charity. And when Ripley's Believe It or Not heard about the trade, it offered $10,000 to the team's charity for children. And so they now own the bats, and they're stored away at a warehouse in Orlando, Florida. One blog by a PCA pastor, which I'm sorry to say I'm deliberately leaving nameless, and there is no footnote for this, because this blog is often mean-spirited. He wrote this about John Odom's death. We can spill a lot of words talking about justice and mercy, AIDS, orphans, and being missional while not giving a tinker's cuss about the man next to us on the bus in the carpool or sitting by himself Sunday morning during Lord's Day worship. If they checked John Odom's cell phone, would they find a single call from a follower of Jesus Christ during this poor man's last week of life? One of us had a chance with him. One of us knew. I'm sure of it. Now, I don't know if any follower of Jesus Christ knew John Odom or not, so I'm not going to throw out the guilt so cavalierly. 
However, I do believe that in our world, there are lots of John Odoms out there, and we need to notice them. One of the people involved with John Odom's career made this comment. We should have seen it coming. The writing was on the wall. We just missed it. That phrase, the writing on the wall, according to Wikipedia, is a sign of doom or misfortune. It originates in the book of Daniel, chapter 5, our passage for this morning, where supernatural writing foretells the demise of the Babylonian Empire. The phrase is widely used in language and in literature. The writing on the wall has come to signify doom, or the end of an organization, or the stopping of an activity, and to attribute to someone the ability to read the writing on the wall has come to signify the ability to foresee an inevitable decline and an end. And so with that in mind, let's continue our study of Daniel. Since we're not following this in chapter order, but chronologically, now we've jumped back to chapter 5. And now we're dealing with the interpretation of a very strange event. The story starts with idolatry at a feast. Idolatry at a feast. That should be the first blank in your outline. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar's father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, outwardly, this was a glorious event, full of pomp and circumstance. Thousand nobles invited to drink wine with the king. Greek historians recorded many such lavish feasts on the part of the Babylonians, and this was one of the best. And yet, by focusing our attention on this elaborate feast as the sole event worth mentioning, the emptiness of the rest of Belshazzar's life and his reign is emphasized. The only mention of this guy is he threw a big feast. That's all we get. And since we're going through Daniel in chronological order, some explanation is needed for why we're going back to chapter 5 after having already done 7 and 8. Pierce 7 and 8 were given as flashbacks to an earlier time, and they took place between chapters 4 and 5. But chapter 5, with its story of Belshazzar's feast, is placed next to chapter 4 and its story of Nebuchadnezzar in order to contrast these two kings. You have to understand it. That's the key to this chapter. Unlike his illustrious predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, he destroyed cities, Daniel 1. He made statues, Daniel 3. He built the wonders of Babylon, Daniel 4. The only thing Belshazzar could do was have a feast. The former built an empire, 
the latter planned a party. And even the centerpiece of Belshazzar's feast, the golden vessels taken from the temple in Jerusalem, had been carried off by Nebuchadnezzar, not by Belshazzar. Belshazzar's only contribution was to profane these sacred vessels taken from the Lord's house by using them for a feast in which he praised his own gods, gods made out of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. One king, Nebuchadnezzar, was great and then was humbled. The other, Belshazzar, was never great, though very proud, and he was humiliated. This contrast, as I said, is the key to understanding Daniel 5. So let's look at what happened next. And so we see humiliation and fear, verses 5 through 9. And we're going to go sort of quickly through the text, so bear with me. Belshazzar didn't have uh, very long to enjoy this great feast because even while uh, he and his nobles are praising their man-made gods, a revelation from the one true God breaks up the party, starting at verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. Now the fingers of the mysterious hand wrote on the plaster of the palace wall opposite the lampstand where its message could be clearly seen though not easily understood. And Belshazzar's response to this writing on the wall once again shows the difference between him and Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar had his dreams in chapters 2 and 4, they troubled and frightened him. However, when Belshazzar receives this revelation from God, he's totally undone by the experience. The text says in verse 6, then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Now this passage was originally written in Aramaic. And uh, as uh, Rich shared with you last week, that's because it's an evangelistic passage to the whole world at the time. And that was the common language. And the Aramaic of this passage literally says, the knots of his joints were loosened. And most commentators think this essentially meant that he lost control of his bodily functions. Essentially, you get the point. But remember, he's the king. There's a thousand nobles there. It's a little awkward. And then when his wise men couldn't interpret the dream, he's left pale-faced and indecisive at a loss of how to proceed and what to do. And it's left to a powerful woman, the queen mother, to solve the problem, a dilemma which would have been humiliating in an ancient culture. And so we read next about a forgotten prophet, verses 10 through 16, a forgotten prophet. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall 
And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. It seems that since verse 2 uh, tells us the king's wives were already present, that the queen in this case is the queen mother. Explains how he, she was able to uh, remember the role of the prophet Daniel during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar many years ago. Belshazzar was the son of Nab, um, Nabonidus. And he shared co-regency with him. King Nabonidus was the king, but he had moved the kingdom because the Babylonians didn't like him. He moved it to what is now Saudi Arabia. But he left his son Belshazzar there and made him a king and left him there in Babylon because they didn't much care about him. And it seems if you follow the historical record, Nebuchadnezzar is probably the great-grandfather of Belshazzar, which would mean that now the prophet Daniel is a very old man. And so Belshazzar, a weak king, is presented with an unreadable message. None of the Babylonian wise men are able to interpret the writing in spite of a very generous uh, reward that's offered by Belshazzar. Anyone who interpreted the writing would be clothed in purple, a fabulously expensive color in the ancient world. And purple became the color of kings because uh, clothes that were dyed in purple were the most expensive clothes. And then he would wear a chain of gold, a mark of high rank. And he would be the third ruler in the kingdom because Belshazzar was only the second ruler after his father, King Nabonidus. They couldn't make him the second ruler because he was the second ruler. So it says several times, make you the third ruler. And that's why he's the third ruler. Because the real power lies with Nabonidus, not with Belshazzar. But now the queen mother, and we're not sure where she fits in. We don't know which one she was married to, and, and it could have been the grandfather who's not mentioned. Um, but she shows up and reminds Belshazzar of the existence of Daniel, whose ability to solve problems had been repeatedly demonstrated during the time of the great king Nebuchadnezzar. And actually, there's a pun here. There's an Aramaic wordplay that just doesn't translate very well in English. If Belshazzar's fear was seen in that the 
knots of his joints were loosened, then the queen is saying that Daniel is a man who has the ability to interpret the knots of the problem. So there is a little wordplay going on here. Uh, not all that complimentary towards Belshazzar. And the implication of the queen's speech is that Belshazzar should have known whom to turn to when there's a need for divine illumination. And he would, he would have to know if it were only more like Nebuchadnezzar. In any event, he takes the queen mother's advice and calls for the prophet Daniel. And the queen mother's implicit rebuke Someone explains the defensive tone in Belshazzar's voice when Daniel is finally brought before him. He addresses him not as the ne Daniel uh, whom Nebuchadnezzar made the chief of the wise men, but as the Daniel who was one of the exiles brought from Judah. Seems he wants to put Daniel in his place right from the start. But much to his surprise and dismay, Daniel stands up to him by explaining the present. It's the first thing we see Daniel do. Explaining the present, starting at verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. But he doesn't do that right away. He's going to sort of describe the present at first. He says, verse 18, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And he didn't give any of those things to you. Doesn't say that, I'm interpreting. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and language, languages trembled and feared before him. That's really key, because what you don't know is outside the city at this very moment, the Persians are camped. And then he went on, he said, Whom he would he killed, and whom he would he kept alive, whom he would he raised up, and whom he would he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened, so he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind. His mind was made like that of a beast. This is all from Daniel 4. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He fed, was fed grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you've praised gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. I love this next sentence. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. You know, they say when you get old, you tend to get a little more blunt. Sort of some of those uh, social restraints are removed. I've been told I'm getting old. <laughs> so maybe I'll be blunt. Daniel is certainly blunt with this pretend king. He's telling him, first off, he says, keep your rewards. 
His services are not for sale to the highest bidder. And then before he interprets the message, he puts it into context, a context, once again, that compares and contrasts the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar with the weakness of Belshazzar. He finally condemns him with these words in verses 22 and 23. He says, you knew all this, but you have not honored God in whose hand is your breath. And the point of Daniel's speech is pretty clear. Nebuchadnezzar had something to be proud of, and yet the Lord still humbled him. Belshazzar, who has none of Nebuchadnezzar's achievements, should have learned from the great king and humbled himself as well. Instead, despite knowing what happened in Nebuchadnezzar, he chose to exalt himself against the Lord, and he profaned the sacred vessels from the temple in Jerusalem and used them in idolatrous worship, praising lifeless idols while neglecting the one true God who's the very giver of life. And only after explaining how wrong Belshazzar has been does Daniel move on to revealing the future. To revealing the future, starting at verse 25. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Meany, Meany, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Meany, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that they should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, if read as they stand without regard to the context, meaning, meaning, tekel, and parson form a sequence of weights. We have them up on one of our uh, banners over here that Louise made. Probably on this side you can't see it, but I encourage you to go look afterwards. It's up there. And it's a sequence of weights that decreases from a mina to a shekel to a perez or a half shekel. And, uh, but read in context with a different vocal vocalization of the Aramaic letters. Aramaic is like Hebrew. There's no vowels. So later on in history, they added vowels by putting little dots and dashes underneath to tell you what the vowels were supposed to be. But you didn't know where to put the vowels. The context determines everything, which is why the Old Testament is so hard to translate. You can't translate just a sentence. You've got to know the whole context. And so if these are read as vowels, the sequence becomes, uh, with uh, different vowels, becomes a sequence of verbs. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. And as Daniel himself explained, the Lord had numbered the days of Belshazzar's kingdom and brought it to an end because Belshazzar had been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And as a result, his kingdom would be divided and it would be given to the Medes and the Persians. Perez is the singular of Parson, and it sounds a lot like the word for Persia. And so that sets us up for the conclusion of the chapter where we find Belshazzar meeting his fate, verses 30 and 31. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, Belshazzar's party is exposed as the ultimate act of folly, He's feasting on the brink of extinction. He's dancing on the edge of his own grave, and he never even knew it. And with Belshazzar's death, the Babylonian Empire came crashing to the ground. 
What he didn't know was the Persians had already taken care of his father, Nabonidus. And like the sequence of weights in the message, this once mighty kingdom has become insubstantial and insignificant, lightweight, and was blown away by the judgment of God. And so all that's good to know, but what do we do with it? What lessons does this ancient narrative have for us uh, who live in an altogether different place and time in history? And since the Bible serves as more than a history lesson, let's make some applications from Daniel 5. The first application would be acting like Belshazzar. Acting like Belshazzar. The story of Belshazzar's feast reminds us not to be awed and impressed by earthly wealth and power. God weighed it in the balance and found it wanting. And as I said before, one of the central themes of the book of Daniel has been God's sovereign power to bring down the mighty. And yet in our culture, I think we're even more apt to elevate others. And not only those with real accomplishments, even those with empty pretensions. We're way too easily impressed by all that glitters, whether it's really gold or not. And in our culture, we idolize those who are physically attractive, those who've acquired great wealth, and those who are famous simply for being famous. Belshazzar's feast is set before us every day, and many, many people around us are mortgaging their futures just to get an invitation to the ball. And it's not just the rich and famous that we idolize. Our envy operates at a far more mundane level. We covet not just the lifestyles of the millionaires, but those of our neighbors. We want their car, their house, their good looks, their successful career, their obedient children. We obviously don't know the truth. In the same way, if we have any small success of our own, you know, we glory in our own petty assets. And the reality is we're all tin pot Belshazzars puffed up by our minor achievements. And God's judgment on our empty pride is severe. Our deeds and accomplishments have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And we stand in the presence of God. We have nothing in which we can boast. Just as Belshazzar feasted while the Persians were camped outside his gates, so too man in his rebellion actively suppresses the truth about God, even though it bombards their senses from every side. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So that's not the only issue we have to deal with when we act like Belshazzar, which we do sometimes, but sometimes we can be found believing like Belshazzar. And that's the second application, believing like Belshazzar. Because it's not just Belshazzar who's been weighed in the balance and found wanting, but his gods have failed the test too. Verse 4, he says he praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And we could talk about the statue and the comparison to all of that. And he ascribes to them glory and honor. And yet his gods couldn't keep the Lord's message from disturbing the peace of the kingdom. Not to mention they couldn't keep him safe from the Persians. And the reality is the God of Israel could effectively defend the honor of his sacred vessels and the lives of his faithful servants while Babylon's gods were impotent. They lacked both power and knowledge. 
the Lord God Almighty was able to save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. But the gods of Babylon, Bel and Marduk, had no power to save Belshazzar from the Persians. And though his own profound, or through his own profound humbling, Nebuchadnezzar came to understand that truth and bow his knee to the God of Israel. But in contrast, Belshazzar doesn't live long enough to learn that lesson. He's humbled and crushed rather than being humbled and restored. And in the West, we're tempted to idolize freedom and democracy as if these virtues had power within themselves to transform the world. In the last analysis, these things are no more substantial than Belshazzar's idols of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now hear me correctly. Freedom and democracy are great blessings when they come to us from the hand of the Most High God who made the heavens and the earth. But if we turn these good things, these created things, into our gods and we worship them, then we're just as foolish as Belshazzar was and we stand under the same judgment that he did. The Lord is the one, the only one before whom you should stand in awe and he holds your breath in his hands, just as he did with Belshazzar. And as followers of Christ, we can say we believe these truths, but in practice, we often act as if they're not true. Why are we completely undone by scenarios that are far less threatening than that which faced Belshazzar? Our hearts are racked with worry when our job is threatened, or even when we can't get the car to start. We're overwhelmed with despair when our health breaks down or relationships end. We respond in anger when our pride is hurt or even if somebody cuts us off in traffic. And these responses reveal our hearts just as much as Belshazzar's feast revealed his pride and the idols in which his trust was placed. And there are many, many days when we're all functional Belshazzars. Our excessively strong emotional, uh, negative emotions show that we've invested these things, our jobs, our health, our relationships, our comfort, our status, our achievements, with divine importance, even while we're confessing Christ as Lord. And if we were to be weighed in God's balance, we would all be found wanting half-shekel believers who deserve to be blown away by God's wrath. So why doesn't he do that? Simply because he is the God of sovereign mercy he is the god of sovereign mercy amen i mean god showed mercy to nebuchadnezzar in spite of his earlier persecution of god's people he humbled him he brought him to the point where he understood the reality of god's power and he bowed his knee to the lord but there's no such mercy for Belshazzar, whose humbling did not bring him to the point of repentance, but just to the point of death. And so God will also bring down all the proud. Some he will humble redemptively, opening their eyes to see their true need. Others will be brought down to death, ultimately shown their life has been an empty sham. And we cannot presume on God's mercy. It is a solemn and serious truth when God says, Romans 9, 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So a person who comes to Christ now 
recognizing you have nothing to offer him, crying out for grace and mercy in your time of need, will find just that. And for those of us who've had our eyes opened by God's grace to see our own emptiness, this story should act as another reminder of the depth of God's mercy. Why should I have been chosen to be a recipient of his grace? Well, others are passed over whose accomplishments far surpass my own. There is nothing in me that makes me worthy of such a great salvation. The only explanation is God's sovereign mercy that chose me me in spite of my stubbornness, in spite of my pride, in spite of my own self-centeredness, and opened my eyes to the surpassing greatness of Christ. In contrast to the kingdom of Belshazzar, which was weighed in the balance and found insubstantial, there is a kingdom which God has established in Jesus Christ, wherein one finds the weight of glory. The steal a phrase from C.S. Lewis. Ironically, Jesus had none of the outward glitter for which this world clamors so loudly. He had virtually no possessions. During his earthly life, he had relatively few followers. He had no outward beauty or majesty to commend him, appearing on earth not as a mighty emperor, but as a humble carpenter. Jesus never had the resources to throw a star-studded feast for a thousand of his closest friends, although once he did brighten up a wedding banquet by turning water into Chianti Classico Reserva, (laughs) the best wine. And yet, when Jesus' life was weighed in the balance, it was found to be perfect and complete, fully able to satisfy the demands of God's holiness, not just for himself, but also for all who come to God through him. His great banquet awaits us in the future at the end of time. And on that day, in place of Belshazzar's nobles, there will be thousands upon thousands of Christ's followers and attendants, the saints of God who have washed their robes and made them clean in the blood of the Lamb, as we sang earlier. And at that banquet, there'll be no place for pride. But every person present will freely confess they've been saved by God's grace and purified by God's mercy. And on that day, there'll be no interruptions of the heavenly banquet. God's rule will finally be established forever and ever and ever. And sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, are invited to come to that table. If you have yet to come to Christ and receive him as your Savior and Lord, then today is the day for you to learn from Belshazzar what danger you're in. Every day, every day the Lord lets you live, you're feasting on the edge of your own grave. And as long as you refuse Christ, then as far as your destiny is concerned, the writing is on the wall. If you don't believe me, just ask John Odom. Think about that. You need to pray.